Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. In this episode, LA Opera's Richard Seaver music director James Conlon explores Tosca, the story, its history, and of course the music. See LA Opera's Tosca at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from November 19th through December 10th. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. Hello, I'm James Conlon, Music Director of Los Angeles Opera, and I want to welcome you to this pre-performance talk about Puccini's Tosca. This, of course, is a tradition, and during these last few years, we have learned to do this on video. This way, you can watch it before you come to the theater, and after you've been to the theater, you can share it with your friends. You just have to come on to the Los Angeles Opera website, and you'll find it there. Giacomo Puccini's opera Tosca has inspired audiences and musicians for now over 120 years. It continues to be popular internationally. Based on a five-act 1887 French play by Victorien Sardou, some of the world's greatest singers have excelled in it and looked upon it as a challenge, a Mount Everest to be scaled. Most of the world's great conductors have shared that enthusiasm. Not everyone, however. It has also inspired revulsion by some musicologists and musicians. Dmitry Shostakovich was meant to have said that it was, quote, a great opera, but terrible music. Now, as an ardent lover of Shostakovich's music, I am fascinated by that remark. I understand his not liking the music. Their aesthetic milieu are worlds apart. But his apparent admiration for the successful construction of Tosca that I think bears thought. Joseph Kerman, an influential musicologist and critic, in his seminal book, Opera as Drama, launched a full attack on it in 1956. When he revised his book 30 years later, he seemed to express some regrets, but not really. Even as a 14-year-old, when I first read this, I was enraged and indignant at his dismissive attitude. I no longer expend my energy on those negative reactions, and I can only say that if it is as bad as he thought it is, it would not have stood the test of time and to continue to keep its place in the operatic world. I would love to entertain those arguments pro and con, but at another time. Rather, today I would like to do something slightly different from previous video presentations. Last time I devoted the talk about Lucia di Lammermoor of Donizetti to explaining the formal structure of bel canto operas, how they were organized as a series of scenes, or in Italian, scena, scene. The scena was basically a five-part closed form with a beginning, a middle, and an end and they were strung together horizontally to build acts and to provide opportunities for the public to applaud their artists. By the last two decades of the 19th century, however, that form had run its course. Whereas the Shena was the basic unit, or the currency, the dollar, if you will, it has now expanded to an uninterrupted dramatic and musical flow, creating the much longer act as the essential unit. Puccini's operas are a long way from the bel canto operas of Rossini, Donizetti, and Bellini. There is even a considerable difference from those of Verdi's, even though Puccini had written five operas before the death 
of his illustrious predecessor. Richard Wagner's influence on Puccini cannot be overstated. The Wagnerian principles of continuous, uninterrupted music, the clarity of text, the avoidance of ensembles and chorus that would blur that text were not lost on the young composer. The dominant and dominating role of the orchestra drew inspiration from Wagner. Puccini's voice always was evident in his early music. For his text, he abandoned two centuries of tradition in turning away from poetry of both the Italian literary tradition and Wagner. The libretto is now pure prose. He was a sponge soaking up all of the newest trends from the rest of Europe, from France, from Germany and Austria, as well as his native Italy. As a young man, he went to Bayreuth, Wagner's home, and had access to all of Wagner's scores. From them, he learned the Wagner's leitmotif system, and though he used it differently, no other Italian composer of his period so effectively absorbed it. In Wagner's hands, the orchestra became a type of a musical dramatic universe, seemingly omniscient, in which the characters of the drama navigate. Puccini follows in his footsteps. I invite you to familiarize yourself with the many particular details of the story of Tosca, this extraordinary opera of intrigue, love, lust, politics, and religion. To oversimplify, let's start with what still persists from the bel canto era. The voice types for the protagonists. The soprano, Floria Tosca, a beautiful, sensuous, acclaimed singer, is passionate and religious. The tenor, Mario Cavaradossi, a young, handsome aristocrat, irreligious and politically radical, loves her and she, him. Soprano and tenor are in love and the baritone, as usual, is their enemy. For complex political reasons, the Baron Scarpia, the chief of police, would like to eliminate Mario. But his motivation is also personal. He lusts for, it would be inaccurate to say he loves, Tosca. The traditional 19th century triangle of vocal types is still alive and well. Scarpia is the least conventional and the most original character. He is deeply evil, maliciously cruel and sadistic. We observe as a ruthless chief of police, a bigoted religious hypocrite, a wily and skilled intriguer, and a rapist. It is not surprising that Puccini was inspired to portray wickedness in such a complex way after Verdi's monumental success of characterizing Iago in Otello. Tosca follows on this masterpiece by only 13 years. Modeled on Iago, to whom Scarpia refers, the blueprint was already there for Puccini to follow. I want to show you Wagner's leitmotif system and how it works in Tosca. The musical motives can be associated with persons, events, objects, or emotions. They can interact with one another. They are always enunciated by the orchestra, which seems to know things the characters may not. It can recount, make associations, and reveal unconscious feelings to the listener. Baron Scarpia, in his function as the chief of police, towers over the entire action. His fearsome, sadistic, bigoted character foresees much of what would appear not only in 20th century fascist Italy, 
but in much of the Western world. From his short, simple motive, blasted at full force before the curtain rises, come many derivatives. It consists of three major chords, which progress in whole tones and end up at the distance of the interval called a tritone, the furthest possible distance in traditional harmony. The tritone was the most difficult interval to sing, and hence it got its name in ecclesiastical music, Diabolus in Musica, the devil in music. The very same can be said for Scarpia and his motive. When he enters the church of Sant'Andrea della Valle, his appearance terrifies all present. When he interrogates the frightened sacristan, Puccini intertwines their motives. Angelotti, an aristocratic political prisoner, has escaped from a prison in the Castel Sant'Angelo and has taken refuge in a nearby church. In that church, his sister, the Marchese Attavanti, has left him food and supplies in their family's private chapel. As Angelotti searches for the key to the chapel, we hear Scarpia's motive telling us that he is very much on the recently escaped prisoner's mind. When Angelotti explains to his friend Mario, whom he meets by chance in the church, that he is pursued by Scarpia, the two men express their mutual hatred to the repetition of his motive. The spectacularly theatrical close to Act One, with the entire chorus intoning a Te Deum, joined by Scarpia, his motive triumphs over all and bookends the first act. Scarpia and the orchestra have had the first and last word. There are many other subtle appearances of the motive. For instance, in Act Two, where it underlines Scarpia's prediction that the next day will see both Angelotti and Mario executed. Angelotti <laughs> 
In the course of the second act, Mario is tortured to provoke him to reveal where Ancelotti is hidden. Tosca, who cannot bear to hear Mario's cries of pain, reveals where he is. Mario is then taken off to the prison, and Scarpia and Tosca are left to bargain for his life. She has the idea to go to the queen and have him pardoned. Scarpia invites her to go, and to the sound of his now altered motive, implies that even if Tosca obtains that pardon from Mario, it will be too late. She would be pardoning a corpse. Over the word cadavere, which means corpse, we hear not a major chord, but a minor one. And now D minor, the tonality associated with death ever since the time of Mozart. Scarpia makes a bargain. Mario will be freed in return for Tosca submitting to the Baron's lust. He gives orders and she, rather than give in, murders him with a dinner knife. As he dies, his motive dissolves into that same D minor. Afterwards, at the end of Act Two, Tosca does not leave Scarpius' corpse untended. She performs a ritual burial, placing candles at his side and a crucifix on his chest. Slowly, in dreadful, somber quiet, we hear Scarpius' motive three times. Now, no longer three major chords, but only two, the last being replaced with a minor chord. Now that Scarpia is dead, his motive has been altered from major to minor. Scarpia's fundamental motive gives birth to others related to it. For instance, his apartments in the Palazzo Farnese is expressed by the descending melodic outline of his motive in unison without harmony. A secondary motive is born, the Palazzo Farnese. And a variation of that variation becomes the basis as Scarpia interrogates Mario. Listen carefully to the bass instruments. Back in the first act, Mario tells Ancelotti that he can hide in the well in the garden of his country villa should Scarpia's henchmen come to get him. 
the motive of the circular well is built out of Scarpia's motive. In Act Two, under the pressure of hearing Mario's tortured cries, Tosca reveals that Ancelotti is hidden in the well. We hear the motive before and after she confesses. The well motive quietly repeats itself as Scarpia orders that Mario's torture be terminated. Basta, Roberti! Assassino! Voglio vederlo! Portatelo qui! And then, to a violent rendering of the well motive, Scarpius sadistically shouts out orders to apprehend Angelotti. Nel pozzo del giardin, in the well of the garden. Nel pozzo del giardino va Spoletta! <laughs> Spoletta is Scarpius' right-hand man. His motive is little more than a scurrying version of that of his superior. We hear it in this example when Scarpia orders him to close the door while he gives secret orders. Spoletta's motive. Afterwards, Spoletta is dismissed and slinks away like a cowering dog to a disappearing version of his motive. Now, let's change gear and go to another motive, almost diametrically opposed to that of Scarpia's. And, well, it should be. It belongs to Angelotti. It is based on half-steps, not whole steps, like Scarpia's. It is always rapid and always agitated. Here is the opening of Act One. It catapults the opera into action. Angelotti's motive. When Mario hears noises from the chapel, the orchestra tells us that it is Angelotti before he reveals himself to Mario. This motive inhabits a great deal of Act One. It will disappear until late in Act Two, when Spoletta returns to Scarpia's apartment with the news that Angelotti committed suicide. The orchestra roars out its response. The impetus for the whole drama was Angelotti's escape from the prison of Castel Sant'Angelo. That escape also gets a motive, if not the prison itself. We first hear it when Angelotti tells us that he has just escaped. Mario offers his help, and here is the new motive. We hear it again when Scarpia tells the sacristan of the church that he is searching for a prisoner who has escaped and whom he believes came to the church to hide. 
attese alle tue risposte, un prigionier di Stato, fuggi pur ora da Castel Sant'Angelo. Sei ritornato qui! Misericordia! And then its most powerful enunciation by the orchestra. And for the last time in Act Two, it accompanies Scarpia's order to hang Angelotti's corpse in full view. So far, we've looked at the motives that revolved around the politics of the plot and Scarpia's tyrannical control as head of the police. The reason for Angelotti's imprisonment as a political prisoner is not clearly stated in the opera, but it is clear in Sardou's drama that he is an aristocrat who fell into disfavor with a favorite of the queen. Scarpia is under royal pressure to find him. Angelotti formerly held the position as consul of the short-lived Roman Republic. Mario leans toward the new ideas of the French Revolution and away from support for the royalty. He has a kinship with Angelotti and is known to Scarpia to share those beliefs. Now, Scarpia has a second reason for disliking Mario, who is also known to be Tosca's lover. Scarpia admires and desires her, and Mario is an obstacle. He has an opportunity to simultaneously rid himself of a rival and to kill off two political enemies of the queen, and with that improve his political standing. Mario has a motif, a simple descending scale. Now we will explore the motives of the lovers and their love although there is a good deal of ambiguity about their use. For convenience, we can refer to it as the love motive. The interval of a falling forth is associated with sensuous, passionate love between Tosca and Mario. They have an extended, passionate exchange in Act I in the church. Here is an example of that motive. Mia Thank you. 
but it is easy to confuse it with Mario's reverie about the beautiful Marchese Attavanti, sister of Angelotti, who has been in the church recently and whom he sketched for his painting of the scriptural Maddalena, Mary Magdalene. The first notes of both motives are similar. Scarpia refers to the Marchesa Attavanti here. La Marchesa Attavanti, il suo stemma. When Tosca, believing that Mario is in love with the Marchese as a result of Scarpia's scheming, the orchestra expresses her grief in full force to the Maddalena slash love motive. But any ambiguity is erased in Act 3, as Mario, awaiting his execution, recalls his loving moments with Tosca. And again, after his famous aria, E Lucevan le Stelle, the orchestra recalls the theme. In Act One, Tosca enters the church for the first time to her own motive, which has some hidden resemblances to the love motive. It is a total contrast to all of the motives from the political sphere. Hers, as she will tell us later in Act Two, is the domain of love. She is devoted to two things, Mario and the Madonna. 
In Act Two, when she is fully aware of the desperate situation in which she and Mario find themselves, she recalls it in her famous aria, Visi d'arte, visi d'amore. I have lived for art. I have lived for love. statue of the Madonna in the church, close to the Atavanti chapel. Remember this important theme, as short as it is. It is the motive of the Madonna. In Act Two, the orchestra will recall it, and thus revealing Tosca's thoughts at the moment she must decide whether or not to submit to Scarpia's desire. She thinks of the Madonna, reflects, and then ascends. When she agrees, she simply nods her head. The orchestra plays two notes to accompany that gesture. In Italian, these notes are la, do, a, c in our system. It is a pun on the words, I give it, means she gives her agreement and herself to Scarpia's desires. Marty. Tosca, in return, wants Mario freed. Scarpia agrees to a mocked, staged execution. Those two notes, la do, become the basis of the motive of the execution. Marty. Marty. Bisogna che tutti abbian per morto il cavalier. Quest'uomo fido provvederà. Chi m'assicuro? L'ordine che gli darò voi qui presente. We will hear it in full force in Act 3, at the moment of the preparation for the execution. And now let's listen to an example how Puccini uses several motives seamlessly connected. Here is the string of motives. First, Scarpia. Aspetta. The Madonna. Tosca's consent to Scarpia's desires. Modi! Modi, per all'istante la voglio! Occorre simular, non posso far grazia aperta. Bisogna che tutti abbian per morto il cavalier. Quest'uomo fido provvederà. Chi m'assicuro? And execution. L'ordine che gli darò voi qui presente. 
Spoletta, chiudi! Spoletta. Execution. Facemmo del conte Palmieri, uccisione simulata come avvenne del Palmieri, hai ben compreso, ho ben compreso, ma voglio avvertirlo io stesso, e sia, le darai passo, vado all'ora quarta. Sì, come Palmieri, Spoletta. Of course, as we will see, neither Tosca nor Scarpia fulfill their promises. They both will betray the other. Tosca will murder Scarpia before his desires are fulfilled. And in fact, Mario's execution will be real, despite Scarpia's promise that it would only be simulated. There are a number of smaller motives, of places, for instance. Mario's country villa, normally the refuge For their love, it is turned into the catastrophe of Angelotti's suicide and Mario's arrest. Here is the motive of the villa. Spoletta describes it to Scarpia to explain how he sought Angelotti in vain, but has arrested Mario instead. The villa. And Mario recalls it in his nostalgia in Act 3. Rome, the so-called Eternal City, is the center of Roman Catholicism with its 2,000 churches. Puccini skillfully weaves religion, politics, and love using various devices. Church bells in Act One. an organ and chanting by the congregation. A full-throated Te Deum sung by the chorus as a counterpoint to Scarpia's malevolent and licentious musings.
a gavotte emanating from the palace below Scarpia's apartment, being danced for the queen in Act Two. and an offstage cantata also to celebrate the queen and the supposed victory of her allies. But nothing is as it seems in Tosca. The victory of the Queen's and Scarpia's allies never happened. Tosca believed there was a love between Mario and Marchese Attavanti, whereas there wasn't. Angelotti believed he would be safe at the villa, only to be cornered. Scarpia believed he would make Tosca submit, only to meet his own death at her hands. Tosca believed that a mock execution would be enacted and she and Mario would leave Rome forever. It was a real execution. Only Mario seems to have known from the beginning what his fate would be. Two suicides, a murder, and an execution. It is the most violent of Puccini's operas. All of its protagonists are dead in the end. Puccini took all of his material from Sardou's melodrama. None of the protagonists are historic, but the situation they found themselves in was an accurate reflection of their time. The opera, impressively concise, respects Aristotle's unities of time, place, and action. Everything takes place in 16 hours, in a church, a palace, and a prison, all within walking distance of each other. The entire narrative is densely concentrated. It has no superfluous distractions nor concession to musical ideas, with the exception of a poetic portrait of early morning in Rome with its symphony of church bells. Act one catapults the opera forward. Act two is an absolute masterpiece of dramatic architecture in and of itself. The story takes place on a historic date, June 17, 1800. Puccini's opera was premiered appropriately in Rome, almost exactly 100 years later, on January 14, 1900. In more ways than one, it can claim 
to be the first great opera of the 20th century. This is James Conlon, music director of Los Angeles Opera, and we look forward to seeing you at the opera soon. See LA Opera's Tosca at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion from November 19th through December 10th. Tickets are available now at laopera.org. If you enjoyed listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain, subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this episode with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera. Bye.